Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Each week, we explore a biblical passage or topic, offering insight and application and seeking to point us to hope and direction for our lives. We also have some interactive questions available for individual reflection or for small groups. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. We are in the midst of a series on the parables found in Luke chapter 15. If you will recall, the chapter opens with Jesus sitting and eating with various sinners and tax collectors, while the Pharisees looked on and grumbled to themselves how Jesus associated with sinners. So Jesus, quote, spoke this parable on to them, Luke tells us. Note it is to them, the Pharisees, the ones who do not approve of Jesus talking with such people. And he spoke this parable, the word is singular, parable, meaning the three stories that will now follow are really to be seen as one composite story. Today, we are going to get into the third parable, the third of these, as we've already looked at the first two, that are found in Luke 15. Most commonly, this one is known as the parable of the prodigal son. As we said, it is the third in a series of three parables. The first story was about a shepherd who left 99 sheep behind and then found his one lost sheep. Finding lost sheep, this is what shepherds are supposed to do. He brings the sheep back to his home and there invites his friends and neighbors to come celebrate with him. He has shown himself to be a good shepherd. The next parable concerns a woman who lost a valuable coin and exhaustively searches her house until she finds it, upon which she also invites her friends to come and celebrate with her. She diligently searched and found that which was of great value. Both of these parables ended with Jesus telling us that, likewise, There is great joy in heaven among the angels when one sinner repents. The theology these picture stories are teaching is that repentance is about being found. And now our third story, which will feature all the same ingredients, something is lost, something is found, followed by rejoicing and celebration and community. Only this time, that something is a person, a human being. The story begins by telling us there was a certain man who had two sons. The characters in the parable by rank uh, that the Middle Eastern mind would attribute to them are there's the father, and there is an older son, and then the younger son. That's how they would rank. Remember the importance of honor and shame in this culture and thus recognizing the proper pecking order and where you fit. It is rather obvious, isn't it, that there are two groups of people listening to him tell the story in live action, the sinners and Pharisees. So the third parable has two sons, and Jesus shifts the third parable to human actors as opposed to sheep and coins that will resemble his live audience. This third story begins like the other two, where Jesus immediately gave offense. So our story begins in verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. 
And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. We see in verse 12, the son says, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And this is immediate tension because the lowest ranking person in the story is making demands and even insulting the honor of the highest ranking member. Give me the portion is an imperative command verb. And this is indeed an act of great dishonor and disrespect. It's like saying, Father, I don't want to wait for you to die. I'd like to have my, my goods now. So he divided to them, the text goes on. And notice it says he divided to them. So the older son also receives his portion. The father didn't just give it to the younger demanding son. He gave it to both of them. And again, in an honor uh, uh, culture, this is a failure on the part of the older brother because he should be out there defending the family's honor, uh, correcting the younger brother. He should be one that's trying to, uh, to prevent this insult and this dishonor and take a role of mediator. But he didn't. But he does receive his portion as well. He divided unto them his livelihood. This term is uh, a word, the Greek word that's bios, and it's related to life, but it's a, a strong term like that which is re, uh, maintaining life, that's which are resources needed for subsistence. And so it's a real heavy term in the sense like it's a real rip, a real relational tear as he separated his livelihood and has to uh, separate his possessions or his land or different things. Um, uh, so this is clearly showing a, uh, a real division that's coming because of this. Now, imagine the scene that's before Jesus. The Pharisees are being told this story, and it offends them to the core. And so throughout this parable, we're going to try to drop in and, you know, pre pretend we can hear what they're saying to themselves as they're interacting with what Jesus is saying. And they would say things like, what? First, in your little story, it is the lowest ranking person making demand on the highest ranking person? That is obnoxious. This reeks of dishonor and insult. And second, what Jewish son would do this? What shame and contempt he must have for his own father? Why, it's unheard of. A total insult. That son should be promptly beaten. And third, what kind of father is this? He is the one who is shamed, and then he himself does a shameful thing by agreeing and actually giving the son what he wants? How foolish and unwise. And fourth, that older son, the older brother took his inheritance too? He took it? Oh, for shame. He should be scolding his little brother. And the father should take them both out into the public square and give them lashings in front of everyone. This story is an outrage. So now we see how this is being perceived. Now, leaving home is a denial of the reality, the younger son, that he belongs to the father with every part of his being. And leaving home, he's, le he's saying, uh, is living though, he doesn't have a home and must look far and wide to find one. And in this way, he's not only bringing dishonor to his father and to his family, but also to his community. There's this greener pasture syndrome. Something is out there. Something is better. Something is needed. Something I must have, and I want it. And so he is drawn in his thinking and distracted. He's out there in his mind. How might he have thought or how might he have reasoned instead, if we think of relationship with the father, 
I like just a few verses from the Old Testament that would be relevant here. In Psalm 1611, David writes, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there God is promising that he will show us the path of life and have in his presence fullness of joy. That's a guarantee. That's a, that's a promise as good as the person who's making it. In this case, this is God. Psalm 84, 11 and 12 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Blessed is the man who trusts in you. So notice in God's presence is fullness of joy, written promise, and he will deny or up or, or no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's why Psalm 73, 25, Asaph said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. So when we have our minds set on uh, divine truth and who the Lord really is and what he is like, we are actually would be drawn to him rather than like this young son departing. But we know that we can do that as well. Now, what value there is in knowing the Lord personally? What value there is in knowing the Lord personally, being convinced of his character and his attributes? Think about that. What of, That is of great value. To draw upon his unchanging truths in times of doubt or temptation or confusion. So these verses we just saw are comforting and remind us of the privilege that we have to stay close and connected to him. And doing that will be of huge benefit. The father is performing an act of love here, actually, in agreeing to the son's demand because he's honoring the son's volition, a freedom that must be in place if we're going to have love. And this parable is going to highlight the love of the father. So there needs to be choice in the sons. He does not want the son to leave, obviously, but he, his love allows the son to do as he has chosen. This kind of love is costly and painful. It's the vulnerable love of a broken heart. The father loves, as the Old Dominion song goes, you got to love like there's no such thing as a broken heart. And this is how the father loves, and his heart indeed gets broken. Well, we read in verse 13, not many days after the younger son had gathered all together, he journeyed to a far country. The emphasis is on how quickly this all takes place. He had to take his wealth and liquidate it into capital, turning it into cash, cash, which also would be seen as dishonorable. And who would even buy it? People in the village would say, no, I'm not taking part in that. It may be people like tax collectors that would be the ones to make a buck here. But the younger son then gathered all together. Think of like your arms drawing a circle, just gathering everything into yourself. Uh, deliberate action. This is planned. He's thought this out. He's working quickly. He has really, it appears, no intention of returning home. And he journeyed to a far country, a distant country, to the world in which everything considered holy at home is disregarded. He's got freedom. Verse 13, it is there then that he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Wasted is a term now that actually just means to dissipate or scatter. So we have a wordplay. He gathered and drew into himself, and he gets in the far country, and he, yippee, throws it all out. Think of New Year's Eve, confetti. And he does this with prodigal living. 
prodigals, the only time this word in the Greek is found in the New Testament, has uh, the, both of all the lexicons give it a definition of something like extravagant or wastefully reckless. I like, uh, uh, it's, not, it's not necessarily uh, immoral, it's just uh, luxurious and extravagant living. Think like an air-conditioned chariot or the finest sheepskin togas, maybe a third-level apartment with a deck and a view. Again, the Pharisees listening would be showing disapproval. The father's hard-earned wealth just blown away by a foolish and ungrateful son? What a dishonor. What shame. Living this way amongst the Gentiles, no less, this is outrageous. So the story is causing emotion. We get to verse 14, and we see there's a turn. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine, and he began to be in want. So we stop and consider this. Really, this is really impulsive, isn't it? He had a good, summer, a good amount of wealth, and he spent all, which means he has no regard for future needs. He must be entirely impulsive. He must be convinced this is the life. But then it came and, and from behind and bit him. In fact, there was a severe famine. You know, I was reading one man said, you know, if we were to ask people to retell the story in our culture, the Western culture, 90% of those would not mention the famine. It's not that relevant to us. We, don't, we, don't, we haven't experienced that really. But he said you do this in Russia where he was ministering, and 90% remember the famine and include it even as an important feature. So this is a severe famine. This is not, this is bad times. This is difficult times. Famines cause a lot of economic hardship and obviously hunger and everything else. And verse 14 ends, he began to be in want. Boy, his circumstances have changed from having so much to having now very little. He is in economic ruin. And these are not, like I said, just some inconveniences. This is getting serious. Survival will be on the line at some point here. So in verse 15, we read he has a plan. He joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. He joined himself. The word means to glue together or associate with. Notice how it's used in 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17. Do, not, do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? There's our word, joined. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Notice this word talks about an intense connection or association. And he willingly connects with a Gentile here who sends him into the fields to feed swine. So he apparently can have a little uh, f uh, food or some opportunity here that was worth it. And he's out in the field, a Jewish boy, and he's working for a Gentile, and he's feeding pigs, which would be to his audience, the audience that's hearing this, to the Jews and even the tax collectors, they would say, wow, that, that's a pretty low, that's a long fall downward. Maybe he tries to make it seem better. The young son would carry around a business card that said he was a bacon preparation assistant. But the humor isn't going to help. The Pharisees are now really outrageous. You, are you kidding me? He hired himself out to a Gentile and he's feeding pigs? Any self-respecting Jew knows not to touch a pig. A pig. Pigs! Are you serious? What shame! P 
he is totally unclean. He's no better than the Gentile dogs that he chose as his friends. He deserves whatever comes to him. He's a disgrace. What an awful story. (laughs) So the story goes on in verse 16. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. The pods are likely carob pods from the carob tree, and it's like like a bean that's found in the Middle East, peaks in April and May, and it was used primarily to feed livestock and pigs, rarely humans, like maybe a little bit in times of famine. It wasn't the best nutrients. But this is how hungry and destitute he is. He's feeding pigs so he could eat pods. That's for the pigs. And again, this is serious. And no one gave him anything, you know. Um, He's hoping that some of those friends that he's made and that he was pretty luxurious with and extravagant with would come around and give him some help. But no one, none of them did. All of the friends have vanished. And he's alone with the pigs and with this food he can barely stomach. You know, he tried, he worked a plan, he cleaved this Gentile. He thought it would work, just like he thought his plan would work to sell everything and come out to the far country and and live it up. But none of this is working out well at all. He's empty, he's hungry, his future is bleak. Psalm 107 and verse 11 says, Because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High, therefore... He brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. And he brought them out of darkness and shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Boy, that psalm fits well with our whole story. But the first part is what we're looking at now. They fell, and there was no one to help. And they're in trouble. Proverbs 14.12 reminds us there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You see, he sought pleasure, and he got misery. He sought freedom, and now he's got bondage. And he sought wealth, and now he's in poverty. Our independent paths definitely will lead us astray. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, I've heard someone say. Keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Isn't that true? So here this young son has squandered everything. His wealth, his honor, his relationships, everything. But not his dignity. He can still function out of that, as we are about to see here. He then comes to his senses. He starts to reason out a plan to return home. And here's what he says. We see in the text in verse 17 that starts with but. We have a contrast. When the word but is given, it's a shift. It's important to distinguish from what and to what. What what, What's the distinguishing parts? He is, we see him in his bleak circumstances, feeding pigs and hungry. And maybe even, and actually, actually uh, starting to eventually perish. And then he shifts to reasoning a plan that will remedy the situation. So, but, we see something's going to change. He's now thinking, and the next phrase is, having come to himself. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? He says, 
I will arise and go to my father and say to him some things. We'll see that in a minute. But having come to himself is literally what this is saying. This is a participle, important because a participle is describing this young man. But a participle then is subordinate. It's not the main idea. So having come to himself is not the grammatical spotlight. It's not the main idea. It's describing the young man as how he's starting to think and reasoning. Um, the the, the uh, various translations say things like, when he came to his senses. So we see that there's some clear thinking that he's starting to engage here. And the thinking is this, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? He said, this is a soliloquy. What's that? Well, that's a literary device that's used where the character speaks to themselves. So the young son said, and we can hear it. We can see what he's thinking. As he's come to his senses, this is what his thinking is all about. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I'm here with perishing with hunger. The father's house, he can remember the servants there have bread to spare. They have extra even. They have the ability to, to save even to some extent. And here he's in the, the Gentiles' field feeding pigs, pig food that barely can sustain him, and he's perishing. And that perishing prompts an exclamation mark in the text as you read it in your Bible even. Perish, that's a word that's used eight times in this parable, uh, the series of the three parables. It's the Greek word uh, apolomai, and twice it's used in the lost sheep parable, and it's translated lost. He lost his sheep. Twice it's used in the coin parable, also translated lost. Three times it's referring to the younger son in this parable. He says it of himself right here in verse 17, and he says he is perishing. The father uses it twice also, as we'll see in a minute, and he this time it will be translated lost again. So we have an interchangeability between perishing and lost. Uh, it shows us that to be lost for the, is akin to perishing. And so that word links the lost coin and the lost sheep to the, here, the lost or perishing son. It would be better to be a servant at dad's house and eat bread and survive than be in these fields and not eat and perish. How do we know that's what he's thinking? Because it tells us so in the soliloquy. We know exactly what he is reasoning. So what is it that he recalls about his father? Oh, in my father's house there are servants that have bread to spare. That's it. So this is all very functional. It's not relational at all. There's nothing about, oh, I remember my father and his goodness, and I remember how much I love him and how I miss him, and oh, I must have hurt him. There's nothing relational. But it's... He's got servants, and they had bread to spare. So there's food there. He has here, by the way, broken relationships. If he goes back, it's not going to be that easy because he's got a broken relationship with his father and with his older brother and the community from which he has left. The older brother isn't going to necessarily want him back because everything is now his by way of the inheritance and the value of it. Why would he want his brother around that now he has to feed and support? And the community will likely not want him back. Um, they could even perform something that culturally was known as the Kasetsa ceremony, where if someone was a, a dishonoring son that left a village and left him in dishonor and returns, they could uh, uh, grab him and do a so 
you know, a little bit of a ritual with corn and stuff, you know, you know, that's the way it is. And, uh, and then say, basically, you're dead to us and shun him. So he's running the danger of that. Of course, the older brother may not want him around, and the father, he's the one who's been insulted and dishonored by his actions, and he has squandered his father's wealth. But how's he going to do it? He's got a plan. He's got a plan that he thinks has a chance to work. And here's his plan. And still it's continuing the idea of what he said. I will arise and go to my father. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him. And so he's got a three-part plan of what he's going to say. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, number one, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Number two, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Number three, make me like one of your hired servants. So he will admit his sin against God and his wasteful or prodigal living. He will admit he's been an unworthy son. And then he will tell his father to make him a hired servant. The term here is one for a day laborer, a hired man. Only New Testament occurrences is here in verse 17 and 19. But he's saying, treat me like one of your hired workers. Like, give me a job. These are day laborers who would work for pay on a daily basis. They don't live in the home. They come and go each day. He's not saying make me a servant, another term, a more common term, doulos, which would be for a servant or a house servant, sometimes even translated slave. They live in the home. They have a servant's quarters within the home, and they do not get paid. Their, their wages are their food and their keep and the security of having a place to stay, room and board, so to speak. So he's not asking to be a servant, slave, do loss, but a hired hand, a day laborer. This plan could work, he thinks. So he plans his speech. In verse 18 and 19, he says, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, and then his plan, and he rehearses it. It's very important to note that in doing this, he's still in control. He thinks he has a workable solution. This could work, and the success of his plan rides on how well the son can make his case, and he rehearses it, plans it out, and goes, perhaps practicing it along the way. And the Pharisees, as they're hearing this story, here's how they're talking. Ah, finally, this story is starting to make some sense. The kid sees he's a no-good dirtbag, and he'll go home, and he'll beg, and he'll grovel, and he'll cry. And maybe the father will consider giving him some work, throw a few crumbs at him, let him wallow. But he must repent, and really repent, and it has to really be showing it, and begging, and looking down at, his, at the ground the whole time. Certainly he won't be allowed back into the family. He's kept in his place, an outsider, out there. He'll be an example for all to see what could have been. He was a wealthy young man if he would just done what was right and honored his father, but he foolishly wasted it. What a loser. The story has been an outrage so far, but it's nice to see now it's going how it's going to come around. This, this son is a no-good weasel. He got what he deserved, and he's going to return in shame and beg and grovel, and he might be showing him, you know, a little bit of mercy and he can live in some hovel and work hard, be banished from the family. But finally, the stories, we can relate to what you're saying here. It's starting to make sense. And so verse 20, verse 20 
A, the first part, it says he arose and came to his father. He had his plan for moving ahead, and he didn't just think about it, he actually did it. <clears throat> he arose, not just good intentions. And he returned. He left, back in the beginning of the story, he left his father's house stating an imperative. Give me a portion of my inheritance. And he will return stating an imperative. Make me one of like one of your hired servants. Not much has really changed. The younger son is not bad or wrong for his scheme. He's actually being shrewd. Something that's actually in the very next chapter of Luke, chapter 16, is praised, as you'll see in a parable there. He knows there's some danger in the air, right? There's the kasatsa ceremony. The, the, the community could, could uh, shun him. There is, uh, what if his father doesn't uh, really accept him or accept his plan? So there's some risk there. But there is horizontal merit to the boy thinking clearly here. He's come to his senses. He's got a plan. And the horizontal merit is there is merit to his reasoned out plan. It could work. And there's horizontal merit to his desire to survive and, and slowly regain some honor and be able to maybe pay back and some of this wealth that he's squandered. And there's horizontal merit to his actually rising up and putting his plan into play and going back. Even the Pharisees are warming up to the story. First, they were outraged. This is dishonorable. This is an insult. But now they, th they think they know how it's going to turn out. And the story is turning out to be okay. And we get it. So the boy returns. And we'll see how it goes in part two on our next podcast. But before we end today, I want to ask you, the listener, this question. Do you think the younger son has truly repented? Does his plan indicate repentance on his part? Now, you think about that, and we will start next week, part two, addressing that very question. Shall we pray? Lord, we come with thanksgiving to you for your goodness and your truth. Thank you for these stories and how they can teach each and every one of us in a particular way, something new, an encouragement, a comfort, a challenge, maybe a correction. And we thank you that in your presence is fullness of joy. May we stay in your presence, uniting ourselves to you in our daily walk by faith. And if there's any listening who do not have eternal life or the knowledge of forgiveness of sins, may they see that you are offering salvation freely to anyone. And it's just by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection on our behalf. What he did is enough, and it is finished. So may they believe, even now, wherever they are. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you appreciate this podcast, you can really help us out by rating it favorably on your podcast app or platform. And feel free to recommend it to others. And email us any comments or questions that you might have. Or if you'd like to receive a copy of the devotional questions or discussion questions, just email us at coolhandgrace at gmail.com. Until next time, always remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.